Thank you, Judd. And uh, let's just go ahead and go to the Lord one more time in prayer this morning. God, we thank you for the singing. You are strong and kind to us. I pray that we would, by faith, seek to find refuge in you. We ask that your word would go forth this morning and that you would once again use your spirit to impress its truth upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of a common that when family gets together, perhaps even this coming week, someone might find old picture albums and start flipping through the pages. The pictures, if they are in an old album, are typically a little more grainy, maybe yellowed, but the styles are what stand out. The styles from the 80s and 90s have the old stonewashed jeans and turtlenecks were alive and well. Go back, maybe 80s and 70s, hairstyles were poofy. The old socks that you would see guys wearing came up over the calves and they had those blue or red circles all the way around, maybe some tight cut off jean shorts. And you look back on those things and you say, man, that's who I was. But today you're very different. I don't see anything too poofy as I'm looking out over you. Um, If you're wearing a turtleneck, that's great. Keep your neck warm. But time changes us. We're all changed in one way or another, changed by experiences, changed by age, changed by decisions and learning. I hope that as Christians, we can look back and we can see that we have been changed by the Lord. Now, in this section of Galatians, Paul is going to take a look back at who we were before the eyes of our hearts were opened and we believed in Jesus Christ. And he uses phrases concerning who we were, like we were captives, we were imprisoned, we were under a guardian. And then in the second half, he looks at whom we've become. He moves forward and shows that we are now sons of God. We are all one in Christ. We are offspring of Abraham, and we're going to explore what those mean and the applications that those have for us. If you're joining us for the first time, or if you've missed a few of these sermons in the past, let me just bring you up to speed with Galatians, the book that we're studying. Paul starts this letter with a simple description of the gospel. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he says that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Uh, He's very clear at the beginning of the book who gives himself for our sins and who delivers us from the present evil age. It's very clear from the very beginning that our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, is all about Jesus Christ. There was nothing that we did or no one else other than Jesus, nothing that no one else could do on our behalf. Jesus gave himself for our sins. It wasn't anything that we did. Now, why does he start the book this way with the focus on Jesus giving himself for our sins? He starts the book this way because he had started churches in a region called Galatia. And after he had started these churches and moved on, a group of religious leaders followed him. 
and came into these towns and started polluting what Paul had taught. We could call them syncretists. A syncretist is someone who takes multiple views and brings them together. Uh, Commentaries call them Judaizers. Now, what was it that they were syncing together? They certainly held to Paul's statement in verse 4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins. But it was Jesus and something else. It was Jesus and, particularly, works of the Old Testament law. These folks had grown up under the Jewish law, and they believed that adherence to this law was necessary as part of your salvation. So they were syncing both Jesus with works of the law. We see this syncretism today. People believe in Jesus, and then they say, um, I hope I can get to heaven. And you might ask the question, well, why do you hope so and not know so? And they say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I hope that I've been good enough in God's eyes that he will accept me. That's syncretism right there. Belief in Jesus and good works. So if you run into somebody over Thanksgiving break and the conversation comes up about salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and you hear this phrase from somebody saying, I hope I'm good enough, you can say, dear friend, none of us are good enough. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Tell them kindly that they don't need good works for salvation. Tell them that Jesus alone is the gift of salvation. And brothers and sisters, this is what we come back to over and over again, that forgiveness of sins, every sin that you've committed is forgiven in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And that's what Paul is doing in this book. He's clarifying the gospel. He's correcting a false message. He's taking that syncretism, cutting it off, and lifting Jesus high for us. Now, what the false teachers believed was that works of the law were needed. And so Paul is showing us that the law, works of the law, cannot save us. It can only point us to the one who does save. All right, so two points for the sermon. They follow the title, who we were and who we are. Point number one, who we were, verses 23 and 24. Paul looks back at who we were in verse 23, and he says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, several things need to be explored in order to help us understand this. When Paul says, before faith came, he is not talking about the concept of faith. He is talking about faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We know this because even before Jesus Christ our Savior came, he refers to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 3 as a man of faith. That's verse 9. Faith in God's promises was what Abraham held to. So when Paul says that faith came, he's not talking about just the concept or the act of faith. He's talking about a new era in redemptive history, a new age in salvation history. He's talking about Jesus Christ coming and us laying hold of him in faith. Now before Christ or before faith came, and accomplished 
salvation, before Christ accomplished salvation for us, Paul talks about our relationship to the law. And in verses 24, 23 and 24, there are three terms or phrases that summarize our relationship to the law. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see these phrases in 23 and 24. He says, we are held captive under the law. We were imprisoned. We were under it, verse 24 says, as a guardian. Now, just think about those three words or phrases for a moment. Captive under the law, imprisoned, and guardian. They have this idea of restraint. Captivity and imprisonment do not, generally speaking, imply good things about us. The reason why imprisonment and captivity is needed is because we are violators. That's why we have jails and prisons, because violations take place, and they continue to take place. So imprisonment, captivity, guardianship needs to be present. For us, we have inside of us what's called the flesh, and we'll come across this in Galatians chapter 5. The flesh is that impulsive, that sinful part of us that moves away from the holiness of God and desires to indulge in sin. We all have that as part of us. And the law of God comes along and puts restraints on us. It puts restraints in front of us at that level. It says, you need to be captive. You need to be in prison. You need a guardian that's over you. Speaking of guardian, let's explore this for just a minute. Paul uses the term guardian. And I know that some of your Bibles use the word tutor or schoolmaster. However, in more ancient descriptions, a guardian was more like a full-time nanny. The parents were, in a sense, giving their authority over to the guardian in order to raise you. So here's what one commentary says. Doug Moo, in his commentary on Galatians, says this about the guardian. The guardian, or this person, almost always a male, usually a slave, had the responsibility of caring for the young children, seeing that they did their chores, got back and forth to school safely, and so forth. They were not teachers and were sometimes noted for the harsh discipline that was considered indispensable for raising children. The guardian was in charge of the young child because the young child was not mature enough to go back and forth. The guardian was there because the child needed discipline. And so at one level, we can ask the question, is the guardian good? Is the guardian good for the three-year-old and the four-year-old? Are guardians down that hallway this morning good for our children, your children? We would say yes. When you think about salvation history, you understand that the law was given because Israel, God's people, showing up at Mount Sinai, they needed a guardian. They needed restraint. Now, I'm emphasizing the goodness of the law for just a moment because I think that sometimes when we get to passages like this and hear things like captive, imprisonment, guardian, we all of a sudden have this view of the Old Testament that says, man, that's just crummy. I don't want to live there. That was awful. They had to bear that burden for 
1,000, 1,400 years or so. Is that how the people of God looked at the law? Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, notice this, he has delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So you can look at the people of God in the Old Testament and see the law is given by God for prospering. And that individual could come to the law and say, I delight in this because this is God's guardrail for me to go forward. It's my guardianship. We read the passage earlier in Psalm 119, verses 97 and and following, David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Okay, so folks under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament here, they have the law that God gave them at Sinai. This law was not a punishment. It was not retribution. It was a restraint to keep them from going forward into sin and indulging their flesh. Did they keep God's law? No, it's like they, they went between the bars. They, they crossed through the imprisonment and still sinned. I want you to see a little bit more of Paul's language concerning the law. Just turn in your Bibles back to Romans 7. Keep, your, keep a, a marker here in Galatians 3. Romans 7 speaks about the law. Romans 7, just picking it up in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, here is Paul saying, man, I, 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 didn't even, I didn't have an eye for sin. And yet the law says, here's the line, don't transgress this boundary. And there it is, coveting. He's like, I wouldn't have even known that unless the law had pointed it out. Now, the sin arises, verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, because the commandment was there, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Because he couldn't keep himself back from these sins. The law showed him sin. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through it killed me. So... Look at his description of the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, so... Just, I think that it's good for us 
just to have this full or robust view that when Paul is talking about the law, this law does have this language in which it holds people back, it imprisons people, it's a guardian to them. And yet, in other ways, when you look at the law, you can look at God's people and say that the law is good because it's pointing out sin in people's lives. All right. What is the purpose or what is the direction that the law is pointing us? So back to Galatians 3. The law is going to point us to a greater need that we have. It was God's wisdom to restrain us. We were captive under it, but now it has a purpose. So look at verse 24. So then the law was, past tense, was our guardian. And notice this little preposition here in your ESV. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so there's a huge translation debate that goes on right here in verse 24 over that word until. In our ESV, it says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, as though it is just a guardian for a time. Other translations look at that word until and say there's more to it. So if we go to the next slide, here are three other translations that will help you see the difference. Here's the King James. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian. Now look at how they translated the until. To bring us unto Christ for the purpose that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so remember, the ESV says the law was our guardian until Christ came, with an emphasis on time. Now the King James is translating it, the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian, for a purpose, to point us to Christ, for the purpose of justification. Here's the New American Standard. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And then the New Jerusalem Bible says this, so the law was serving as a slave to look after us, to lead us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Those three versions are emphasizing a purpose. What does the law do for us? What was God's purpose for the law? Was it just meant to serve for a period of time or was it meant more than that? The phrase that follows in verse 24 lends me to think that these three translations got it right. That the law was meant to point us to Christ for what purpose? In order to be justified by faith. All right, so let me go back to Doug Moo so that uh, you have some scholarly uh, perspective here. Doug Moo says this then, it is then preferable to translate ace, that's the Greek preposition until, it is then preferable to translate ace as having its very common combined temporal telic sense. All right, so time is temporal, telic is sort of its complete or looking forward sense. Perfectly captured in the unfortunately outdated English unto, see the King James Version. So 
All that to say, this will summarize it. God imposed the custodianship of the law, not simply until faith in Christ arrived, but with a view to that climax of Christ's arrival. So perhaps you can think of it this way. God is using the law not as a means and ends of itself to make you right, but as a means to push you forward, saying, I need help, and that place that it pushes us forward is Christ. So you can think of it this way. You are driving down the road, and you have to get to your appointment because you're already late. And so you're driving down the road, and you see the speed limit sign says 55 miles per hour. And that's the law. And yet inside of you, there is this impulse that I don't want to show up late to that meeting. So instead of being 55, I get the exception. I'm going to break through the imprisonment, the guardianship, and I'm going to do what I want. And so you put the pedal to the metal, and now you're doing 80 down the road. The law, with its blue and red, pulls you over and gives you a ticket. You violated the law. Okay. I'll stick that in my back pocket, can't deny it, I'm guilty. Well, the next week, you're 10 minutes late to a meeting. So you got to do 80. And you say, I want to get to that meeting. There's that internal desire. I want to get there. And you're speeding. And again, the lights turn on, pull you over, and you get more tickets. You violated the law. And now you've got this guilt that's racking up. You do it again. They take your license away. You do it again. They put you in prison. And finally, you're in your prison cell, and the law keeps coming down on you over and over again, and something inside of you says this, I realize that I need help. Why is it that other people can drive down the road and keep the rule, but I can't? Why is it that I have this impulse over and over again to think that I have the freedom to do what I want? And all of this weight from the law is coming down, and it points you to say, man, I need to go talk to Pastor Nate because I got a real problem here with my driving. <laughs> the law with sin before Christ is coming down saying, hey, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And Paul is saying, this is good. You need to know what sin is. And when you know what sin is, the law shows you you're in violation of God's authority. And what does it do? It says, I need help. I need to go somewhere for help. Well, where is it going to push you for help? Verse 24 says, it's pushing us toward Christ for what purpose? The end of verse 24. In order that we might be justified by faith in Christ. So somebody comes to Christ, receives Christ as Savior, and God looks down and says, I declare you righteous based upon your faith in Christ. And so what is Paul doing now in this argument? He's showing us that the law was never here as a means of salvation. The commands to obey the speed limit. Or in the original context, it was circumcision, Sabbath, and dietary laws. They were never meant to be like acts of obedience that gave you salvation. It was meant to be a guardian. It was meant to be a weight that was placed on you in order to point you to the helper, Jesus himself, knowing that you've sinned and broken the law because we all have and we need Christ. So this morning, 
if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you need Christ. We need Jesus because of our sinfulness over here. So all the things, and you know that inside, you know the selfishness, you know the anger, you know how you've not loved well, you know how you've hated. You know that about yourself, and now there's this weightiness that comes down on you, and what does the weightiness do? It's meant to be like you squeezing the toothpaste up the tube. It's meant to push you in a direction, and that direction is here. It's right over here to Christ. For what purpose? That you might be justified by believing in him, not the law. So this is the goodness of God's plan that we would know our sin. I think about this with the law pointing us to Christ. And I talked about this last week. And it's worth mentioning again. The moral commands of Scripture are good, but they are never ultimate. If our ultimate aim in life is to have our children become moral conformists, then just keep them in the moral prison and keep putting the weight of don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that upon their shoulders. Give them a list of commands and stop right there. And what will happen is you're going to either raise self-righteous Pharisees who say, look at this, look at what I've done. I've been able to keep mom and dad's law. Or you're going to raise very insecure children who say, I never measure up. I never measure up. I'm never good enough. That's law living right there. And it's, it's good in the sense that it's part of God's plan. But if that's it, you've missed it all. The law is meant to be this heavy weight. It's meant to squeeze us. It's meant to discipline us. It's meant to push us where? Ultimately to Christ. So when you have a child that is struggling with obedience, you come in and sit down and you say, do you know that you have broken God's commands? Yes, I feel the weight of that. Where is that going on? It's going on in my heart. You see that, Junior? It's taking place in your heart. Who is going to change your heart and who is going to bring you back into a relationship with God? Who can do that? Well, I can't do it because I keep falling all the time. I keep getting annoyed. I keep getting angry. I keep doing these things over and over again. I'm a sinner. Yes, that's why you need Jesus in your life. And so godly parenting, biblical parenting, and even just biblical discipleship never ends at the moral commands, just like the law doesn't end at the law. The law is always pointing us to the law keeper, Jesus himself, who becomes our gift. By faith, we're justified in him. So who we are, or who we were, we were, we were under the law. We were sinners, needing Christ. And what Paul does is saying, hey, the law will never save you. Its goal, its means is to point you to him. And so at the end of verse 24, he says, man, the law was used in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Okay, so now who are we? Verses 25 through 29, who we are, point number two to the sermon, three identities to who we are. Verses 25 and 26 say this, but now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian or under the law. It, it doesn't have that same authority in our life anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
So the nanny, the law, is not the, the lasting weight that is upon the Christian's shoulder. That era has come to an end for God's people. And I would just say, Christians, don't put yourself there either. Like, that's not the weight that you need to feel over and over again. God will use his moral commands to direct you and violating those moral commands, God will use his law to push you to Christ. But now we are under the guardianship of Christ. So over in chapter five, he says, you're no longer under the law, you're under the spirit. But notice who we are. We are sons of God. And how is it that we are sons of God? Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God. So notice Paul's emphasis over and over again. Not the law, but Christ. Not the law, but Christ. And he says in the beginning of verse 26, notice the sphere that you are in, spiritually speaking. You are in the sphere of Christ. And this makes sense then. If you are in Christ, this is talking about our union with Christ. If we have been saved and placed inside of Christ, what is Jesus's relationship to the Father? He is a son. And now that we're in Christ, we are in the Son, and we have that same relationship that he has to his Father. So what a privilege for you to know today that if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, God looks at you in Christ and says, there's my son, there's my son's. You are all sons in Christ if you have trusted him as your savior. He moves on in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Someone who believes in Christ, baptism is that public act by which we are declaring ourselves as believers in the one who died, who was buried, who rose again. It's a capstone event for the believer and he or she is saying, I've put my trust in Christ. I put Christ, I'm believing in him, and I'm showing you all that I believe in him. And all of this points to our status as sons of God. So here is Paul saying, believer, the law will not save you. It points to Christ, and those who trust in Christ can have assurance that they are sons of God of God. What a privilege for us to know just this morning. All right, that's who I am. I am a son of God. I'm a child of God. All right, so we are sons of God. That's who we are. Number two, who else are we? We as believers are all one. We are all one. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's as though Paul says, all right, you've got your vertical identity nailed down. You can see yourself as a son before God. Now I want you to see your horizontal identity. Who are we? And he uses three different categories to sort of press this home. He's got an ethnic class. You've got the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews may have tended to look down at the Greeks because they were given the laws and commandments of God. He uses a social class. You've got the free and the slave. The free may have looked down upon the slave because the slave was the one who was supposed to do the work. The servant might look up at the free and snarl at them because they were a freeloader, maybe. You've got the category of gender. 
So the man might look down upon the woman, especially in ancient history. Josephus said the woman, he's writing in the first century, the woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be obedient to her husband. Okay? I mean, you, you know this historically speaking. All right, so Paul looks at these three categories and he says, there are distinctions in these categories. There's ethnic distinctions, there's social distinctions, there's gender distinctions here. Do those distinctions just go away? He's not saying that distinctions go away. What he's saying is that those distinctions which divide people and put them into separate categories out in the world are no longer divisive in the body of Christ. The Jew and the Greek, they're now one. The slave and the free are one. The man and the woman are one. So folks, I mean, think about this just culturally speaking. Wars are being fought this morning because of ethnicity. Protests and cultural movements are lining up. You see it regularly, rich against poor, oppressed against oppressor. Cultural movements are trying to erase all the good and beautiful distinctions and the different roles between men and women. Our world is searching for a place of unity. And and they are trying to conquer to have unity or they're trying to erase all the distinctions that God has made. And so you've got this whole gender thing going on. The place that you find what the world is looking for, where ethnicities can come together and truly be united deeply, where people of different social classes can come together and not look down at the other and not look up in bitterness at the other, The place where men and women can come together and be unified, where is it? Paul says it's in the body of Christ. So this morning, from this end of the auditorium to this end of the auditorium, Christ looks at you and says, okay, you're united. You are all one. The church becomes a place where all Christians should be valued the same, regardless of skin color, financial income, or gender. Can you think of how Jesus shocked people by violating these cultural norms? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. The disciples left, and there's Jesus. And he walks up to a woman who is a Samaritan doing a servant's task. And the disciples come, I mean, this is kind of scandalous. And she even said, are you asking me to do this, to draw water out for you? This doesn't seem like it fits the cultural norms here. Jesus could look past all of that because of the purpose of the gospel. I think for us as a church family, We need to recognize that the world is desperately looking in all the wrong places for what can only be found inside the church. And therefore, we have a responsibility to be gospel-oriented, Christ-centric, so that, not, yes, for God's glory, but when folks come in, there ought to be a different feel here. 
men ought to be treating women without these like kind of chauvinistic machismo sort of things where women would be able to come to church and say, man, that's the one place where gentlemen aren't mansplaining me all the time. It's the one place where they're not dismissive of me. It's the one place where they're not looking at me through this sexual-oriented lens all the time. I come in there, and they are men, and there's something that's different about that place, that's different about those people. And Paul links it all the way up to your relationship with Christ. You're in Christ, you're a new creation, and now the body is one. I think men, as you go home, one of the things that comes to mind is many of you are married. And does your wife know that even though there are distinctions, that you look at her as a sister in Christ and as one? I hope the wind of the gospel catches our sails in all of this. I hope that we as a local body will reflect a oneness. We can have differences, we can have disagreements, and we can bring up the list of differences among us, right? I mean, there's a bunch of differences among us. Yet in Christ, we find that we are one. Okay, and third, lastly, we are Abraham's offspring. This has been the question since the beginning of chapter 3. Who belongs to the family of Abraham? Who are Abraham's true sons and daughters? Look at verse 29. If you are Christ's, if you believe in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're in this family, and you are now heirs according to the promise. Christ is the true offspring. He's the trunk that comes down the family tree, and anyone who is in Christ now belongs to this tree. So what's Paul's point? Paul's point is, it's never about the law. It's only about faith in Jesus that makes us sons of God. It's what brings us together into relationship with him. And because of that, we have the promises of God that are ours to hold. This is the privilege that we have. We have the assurance that we are sons of God. We have the unity that we are one. And we have the hope that the promises of God belong to us. And in all of this, Paul is saying, you're not going to find that by being people of the law as your final authority. This is a gift that you have when Christ is your Savior. Who we were, we were under the guardianship of the law. That's who we were. Who we are. We're part of God's family because of faith in Jesus. It's never about, I hope I'm good enough. It's all about, do you believe in Jesus this morning? If you do, you're sons of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you will use it to sustain us and propel us forward into the upcoming week. We ask that you would remind us over and over again of the privilege that we have because of the gospel. I pray that you would remind us over and over again who we truly are, and then to flesh that out in our living, 
flesh it out in our thoughts, flesh it out in the way that we relate to others this week. We're no longer guilty. We're under the justification that you've given to us, found in Christ. And so we thank you that this is all about Christ. Just with your heads bowed, you might be here this morning and you might be saying, man, I don't know who this Jesus is, or I see him here and I feel the weight of sin upon me. The Bible just simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so even right now, if God's at work in your heart, just believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will be saved. And Christian, has there been something in your life where the identity that God gives you has taken a back seat? Perhaps you haven't had assurance of salvation, or perhaps something has come between you and another brother and sister in Christ to the point that the relationship is fractured. Can you go back to Christ and confess that this is not what you've called me to, and I've got these promises, and I'm going to live in light of what you've given to me? Just talk to God quietly, and I'll come back and pray. Lord, we thank you for, once again, your goodness to us, and we pray that you would recall truth back to mind this week, that we might live by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.